we were to start this morning with uh, a game of Family Feud, all right? All right, let's, that, that might be kind of interesting for us. And if I were to ask you to name, what's the, what's the number one thing that Americans are cynical and angry about? Wow. You want to just say government politics? Yeah, y'all just y'all read my sermon. Um, exactly. Survey says government. Survey says politics. And we're, we're cynical for different reasons. Some of us are cynical because we feel like no matter who gets elected, nothing really changes. Uh, we're cynical because we think politicians, they, they, they're all the same and they can't be trusted. Uh, we're angry because we think, well, if those people on the other side, whoever that may be, would just think more like me, then everything would, would work out. And then if our man or woman gets elected, we're excited for a while because the destruction of the free world has been averted, or so we're told. Uh, and then slowly, we all become cynical again. And so we're cynical and angry, and yet every four years when the president is inaugurated, and they play this song at other times too, but they play, yours is the aim to make this grand country grander. This you will do. That's our strong, firm belief. Hell to the one we selected as commander. Hell to the president. Hell to the chief. Now, you probably have never heard those lyrics. I had, to, I had to look those lyrics up. And I think if we knew those lyrics, there, there certainly would be occasions, uh, no matter who has been president, where we kind of roll our eyes at that and like, yeah, okay, right. But so why do we keep playing that song? Well, it's out of respect for the office. It's tradition. Uh, And I think, though, it also embodies the hope we have for the office of the president, that that the man or the woman that we've elected will actually live up to the ideals of this office and will lead our country well. Now, I'm actually not talking about politics at all. I'm just setting this up so don't don't get nervous. Psalm 2, Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm. Uh, It's kind of the Old Testament version of Hail to the Chief. It's a, it's a psalm that would have been sung at the coronation, the installation of a new king in Jerusalem. Oil would have been poured over the king's head. He would have been anointed to show that this king is actually authorized by God himself to be your king. And so they would often sing this psalm. And I wonder if the Israelites ever rolled their eyes when they sang this psalm. Uh, or did they sing it with the hope that the king would actually lead them to the glory that this psalm looks forward to? The reality is, I'm sure it's probably a little bit of both. You know, the Israelites weathered good kings and bad kings. They saw great military triumphs, but they also eventually were taken into exile because of the evils of the people and of their leaders as well. And yet they still sang this song, didn't they? They still sang this song, a song that uh, I think really is intended to give them and us hope that God will keep his promises and that a good king would come and that God's king would rule the earth and that God's people would be blessed one day. And so if if you're cynical or you're angry or you're frustrated or if you just don't have a whole lot of hope that things are ever really going to get better, this psalm offers hope. If you're somebody that's just really messed up at life and and feels like just in your immediate life, things are never going to get better. This psalm, I think, offers hope. But there's a caveat. Uh, This hope is only offered to those who surrender to the king because he is the king. 
So let's look at this together. Um, I'll read for us Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, we do come before you now. Uh, bowing before you and asking for your help. Uh, I ask for help that you would help me to speak uh, plainly and and truthfully and and to indeed offer grace and hope. I pray, Father, that you would would give us uh, ears where we really can hear what is being said uh, and hearts that are believing hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 2 offers hope, and it ends with hope. We've got to take a minute to get there because it actually starts with rebellion, with the reality of rebellion. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The nations rage, the the peoples plot, the kings of the earth take their stand against God and against His anointed King. Why? Why do they do that? Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do they rebel? They rebel because they find God's rule to constraining his rules to constricting they 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 can't live with thy will be done they they want to live with my will be done and that that's us too and that's the cry of every human heart my will be done i don't know if, if many of you will remember this but a few years ago there was a guy who played football for the cincinnati Bengals, and his name uh, was chad johnson and he was number 85. And for whatever reason, Chad Johnson decided that he wanted to replace his name, his last name on the back of his jersey, with Ocho Cinco, uh, which is Spanish for 85. And the NFL said, we, no, you can't do that. We have a rule that you can only have your last name on the jersey. And he said, okay. And so he went and had his last name legally changed to Ocho Cinco so that he could put that on the back of his jersey. Um, that's a little out there, I know, but I think that's illustrative of what we often do. Like, we'll look for ways around the rules, to, to slide by the rules, to, to bend the rules a little bit so that we can get done what we want, so that we can do what we want to do. The Bible says we're all like that. Whether you're kings or rulers or NFL football players with too much time and money on your hands, we are, we are all like that. 
Susan's been trying to read St. Augustine's Confessions, and she said, this is really hard reading. Do I have to read all of this? It's not like I assigned it to her. But she's like, she, her, her guilt complex, like she started, I've got to, And I said, look, really, you just have to read, uh, you know, the, the part about him running into his old mistress and the part where he says, there's a hole in your heart that can only be filled by God. Or that was a pop song. But it's like that. And then, and then the part where he talks about stealing the, the pears, right? And those are the three Augustine stories you need. And you're like, well, what's the pear story? I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. The, 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 the pear story is this. When Augustine was young, he snuck out with some friends and they stole a bunch of pears. And Augustine said, and thinking about it, back on that later, he said he didn't do it because he was hungry. And he said, I didn't do it because I really liked pears. Those were not the reasons I did it. He said this, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. I already had a bunch of good pears. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. In other words, what he said, like, I just wanted to do something bad. I, I just wanted to rebel. I wanted to do what I wanted to do. I didn't want anyone having authority over me. And that's, that's us. We, we resist and we rebel against authority. We think God's rules are too restraining. And we say, I, I've got a right to do what I want to do, what I desire to do. And I ought to be able and free to follow my heart. And so we, we cry out for freedom of what we perceive as something that's too restrictive. We want to burst what we perceive to be bonds and cast away what we perceive to be shackles in an effort to find freedom. Uh, we're all in this boat of the, the nations, the kings, who rage and plot and resist God's authority. Well, secondly, it's the reality of, of our rebellion. The psalm tells us that this is actually futile, that there's a futility to our rebellion. One of the things we see in Scripture is that when we, we try to throw off God's rule, we try to throw off what we think are God's chains, we wind up in chains anyway. We wind up chained to other things that we worship and serve. So that while we think we're finding freedom, we're really just in bondage to a new master who's not a good master. Romans, Romans 1, let me read just a little bit of Romans 1 to you. Um, talks about this. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And then you skip down a few, he lists some of these. And then verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. 
And so the psalmist tells us that when we try to cast off God's rule, that God actually scoffs at that. That God laughs at that. And that our rebellion brings us under God's wrath and God's fury. And then Paul tells us in Romans 1 that one of the ways that we actually experience God's wrath is not just in some future judgment, but that we also actually experience God's wrath now when he gives us up to the very things that we are pursuing instead of God and we wind up in slavery and bondage to these things. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, in, in a very famous speech a few years ago, put it this way. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. And he says, some of the, some of the things that we worship will actually eat you alive. He said, if you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud. Always on the verge of being found out. Um, And he says these things we worship become almost unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day. Getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings. Because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom, the freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms alone at the center of creation. Um, Not a believer at all, but very insightful to the ways in which things that we worship, the things we pursue, actually become the things that enslave us and rule over us. And so the scriptures remind us that our rebellion is, is futile, that it doesn't bring us the freedom that we actually think it will bring us, that we're actually designed to obey God and to worship him and to live life as he has designed it to be lived. Well, what does God do with this rebellion? Verse 6 of the psalm tells us that he, he crushes the rebellion. And that he does this by installing a king. Verse 7, spoken in the voice of the king, tells us that this king is also God's son. The Davidic king was considered to be God's son. His relationship was confirmed at the coronation of the king. And then the rest of the verses tell us, give us a picture of the son crushing the rebellion of those who have rejected him and rejected God. So he crushes it. That's how God deals with it. Uh, Charles Spurgeon told the story of a Roman emperor who had made a medal that says the name of Christianity being extinguished or will be extinguished, something along those lines. But that didn't really happen. In fact, uh, another pastor, William Plummer, wrote, of 30 Roman emperors, governors of provinces, and others in high office who distinguished themselves by their zeal and bitterness in persecuting the early Christians, one became speedily deranged after some atrocious cruelty, 
One was slain by his own son. One became blind. The eyes of one started out of his head. One was drowned. One was strangled. One died in a miserable captivity. One fell dead in a manner that will not bear recital. One died of so loathsome a disease that several of his physicians were put to death because they could not abide the stench that filled his room. Two committed suicide. A third attempted it but had to call for help to finish the work. Five were assassinated by their own people or servants. Five others died the most miserable and excruciating deaths. Several of them in untold complication diseases, and eight were killed in battle or after being taken prisoners. Among these was Julian the Apostate. In the days of his prosperity, he is said to have pointed his dagger to heaven, defying the Son of God, whom he commonly called the Galilean. But when he was wounded in battle, he saw that all was over with him, and he gathered up his clotted blood and threw it into the air, exclaiming, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. The rebellion of the kings who rally against God is finally crushed. Uh, and so, so there you go. All right, that's, that's your message of hope. Um, one day, the, the father will crush, send the son to crush the rebellion. Uh, and that includes Roman emperors. That includes rebels like you and me. So, so where is the hope? Where is the hope? Let me, let me say this. Um, if you've experienced injustice in some way, uh, if someone you love has been abused, maybe you have been abused or someone you love has been abused and the person who did that abusing has never really faced any consequences for that, you want there to be a day of reckoning. You want there to be a day of reckoning for that. And, and even if you haven't experienced that, I really could scroll through the news online. It wouldn't take me very long to find stor- some story of injustice that I could have brought in here and read and we all would have like, you know, we would just like, oh, that's terrible. And we would want justice to be done. You, that, that screams inside of us when we see some of the atrocities in the world. And the fact that God is not going to leave sin unpunished is actually quite hopeful, I think. That, that there is a just God at the center of reality. That, that crimes at the end of the day will, will not go unpunished forever. But here's the, the catch. If, if this God at the center of reality is completely just and he punishes sin and rebellion, then if you're reading the scripture, that creates a problem for me and for you as well. And so where is the hope? The hope is in verse 12. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, who's who's him? Well, he's the king. Who's the king? Well, he's the son. Who's Who's the son? He's the one who has come and is coming again. He is the the Galilean that the Roman emperor spoke of. See, there there never was a king who lived up to the standards of Psalm 1. Never was anybody who was was that kind of righteous or who fully carried out God's justice in the way that you would think in Psalm 2. In fact, instead of achieving victory over their enemies, the people of Israel eventually were carried into exile and defeated by their enemies. But the people kept singing this song. They kept singing Psalm 2. 
even when no kings were being crowned, they sang this song. And they prayed this song. And they held out hope for a king. And then one day Jesus shows up. Uh, in, in Mark 1 at his baptism, the father says, you are my beloved son. Or this is like a coronation day. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter and James and John are told, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus, when he comes in Luke 4, announces the coming of the kingdom and says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, the Messiah, comes and He heals the sick and He raises the dead and He heals the lame and He forgives sins. But then, like nothing, right, in in the minds of some, he doesn't overthrow the Roman occupiers. He doesn't crush the rebellion. He doesn't do what the king was supposed to do. He just suffers and dies. But then a funny thing happens. He rises from the dead. And the disciples see this. And the disciples start preaching about this. And the disciples start connecting the dots with Psalm 2. Um, Listen to some of the, this is from the book of Acts. And this is just some of the ways that you can see this. Um, Acts 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together and got to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your world, your word with boldness. And then in chapter 13 of Acts. That's not chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Acts. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to their fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. 
And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. And so they say, this is, this is the King. Jesus is the King of Psalm 2. Repent and believe in Him. This is the one who died for your rebellion. And so repent and, and bow the knee. Uh, kiss the Son. Serve the Son. Rejoice with trembling in the words of Psalm 2 that God is actually offering amnesty to rebels. Take refuge in the Son. Take refuge while you can because one day He will return to judge the earth. Revelation 19, also alluding to Psalm 2, says, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus will return as the mighty king who strikes down the nations, who rules them with a rod of iron. His rule will be visible and it will be fully realized to the ends of the earth. And those who have taken shelter in Him will live, will rejoice, will will find new life. But those who have continued to say, my will be done, will perish. Uh, George MacDonald once said that the one principle of hell that kind of unites hell is, I am my own. I am my own. And so we then lie in between the resurrection of Jesus and the return of Jesus. And our message is the king is a just king who does punish rebels. But he is also a kind and a loving king who offers shelter to sinners, to the same rebels. Uh, When we were returning from our trip out west, we stopped for, and there's a story behind this, but I won't tell it all. We stopped for worship at what wound up being this little small Anglican church and the pastor there preached a sermon that morning of when you're going through the storms of life and it feels like Jesus is in the boat with you. You know the story with the disciples and said, yet Jesus is asleep. And he doesn't seem like he's going to help you. And I thought, well, this is kind of reminds me of the early part of our trip. Um, and this, but, but he did help us. And so, yeah, I, I appreciate that. But little did I know, we were going to be driving in the worst storms we had seen in forever all that day. So it was actually foreshadowing, I think. And so I, I tell people we kind of surfed through Oklahoma and Arkansas with that trailer behind us and the wind and the rain. And finally, we were like, we're going to wreck. And so we pulled over and we found shelter in a little truck stop uh, in Arkansas. And that's where we had shelter from the storm. What, what Jesus is offering is shelter from the coming storm of God's wrath. And yet the scripture says that Jesus himself is the shelter. He doesn't say run over there. He says, I am the shelter. I am the one who absorbs the the lightning bolts, as you were, of of God's wrath at the cross. And you can find shelter there. And so the invitation is to come and find shelter at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus is going to return to, to right all wrongs and to wipe away every tear. And to make things right. And to make things good. And that is an amazing hope. And that is something we look forward to. It's good news. But it's, it's only good news for you if you bow the knee to Jesus. And kiss the Son. And find shelter in Him today. And so the question for you is, will I, will I 
lay down my weapons of rebellion and find shelter in the cross? Will I quit trying to be the king and put my hope in the true king? Because y'all, he really does offer shelter to you. He really does offer shelter to sinners. He says over and over, I, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for sinners to offer them shelter. There was a, I'll close with this. There was an op-ed in the Dallas Morning News about a week ago, um, a couple weeks ago, and, and it was about another king. It was about Elvis Presley, the king. Uh, and and this, is, this is from this op-ed. It said, At bedtime on the night of the king's particularly ignoble death, his biographers say that he lingered to play a few songs on the piano and sing Unchained Melody, and particularly Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain, making it perhaps the last song Elvis ever sang. Love is like a dying ember, only memories remain. What were Elvis's final memories of Gladys, of Priscilla and their marriage, of his struggle with his slowly dissembling religious faith, of musical promises yet unmet and unfulfilled? Rolling Stone magazine in 2004 asked U2's Bono, who himself knows a thing or two about fame and the price it demands, to analyze the impact of Elvis Presley on popular music and culture. Bono first repeats the story of Elvis always finding his way back to the piano. Then he offers this grace-filled observation. With no one else around, his choice would always be gospel. Losing and finding himself in the old spirituals. He was happiest when he was singing his way back to spiritual safety. But he didn't stay long enough. Self-loathing was waiting back up at the house. Elvis was seen shooting at his television screens. The Bible opened beside him at St. Paul's great ode to love, 1 Corinthians 13. And then he said this. Elvis clearly didn't believe God's grace was amazing enough. Elvis clearly didn't believe God's grace was amazing enough, that it was amazing enough even for someone like him, even to cover his sins. The shelter was enough. Y'all, God's grace is amazing enough. It is amazing enough for you. And so my encouragement to you this morning is to use Psalm 2 to sing and to pray your way back to the shelter that Jesus provides. And stay there. Because there's nowhere else you can go. We pray for us. Father, would you uh, help us to heed the warnings of this psalm and also to find hope in this psalm that there is a, a good king who will put wrongs to right uh, and yet also offer shelter to those who have committed those wrongs. And so help us to be those who would believe this offer of shelter, you would believe that that God's grace is amazing enough and that we would run to that shelter and rest in that shelter and stay in that shelter. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.